With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Singh, your host for season two of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020. You've joined me for a bookshelfy episode in which we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five brilliant books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfy. We are still practicing safe social distancing, so this episode is being recorded remotely. Joining me today is Laura Bates, a writer and the founder of the award-winning Everyday Sexism Project, an ever-expanding collection of over 100,000 testimonies of gender inequality, which has been described as one of the biggest social media success stories on the internet. Laura's first book, Everyday Sexism, was published in 2014, and her latest book, Men Who Hate Women, is out on September 3rd. Laura works with schools, universities and politicians to tackle gender inequality and has won multiple awards and accolades for her work. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and, you know, sharing your amazing selection of books, which of which I am a really big fan. Um, I really oh, like you. your choices. And there's also a couple that I've just never heard of. So I'm really excited to hear more about them. Oh, fantastic. Were you always a big reader? Um, I was particularly as a child. I read absolutely voraciously throughout my childhood. Um, I had I had some teachers um, when I was really little who really encouraged me to explore books and kind of would bring in books that they thought that I would like. And the impact that that's had on my life has been absolutely massive. Um, but I think after having done an English literature degree, I had a period where I stopped reading for a while, which I think is quite common. I know a lot of people who who say the same thing, that you kind of almost um, get overlaid. And, and I had a kind of break from reading and then came mm-hmm. back to it. Um, so I had a, yeah, but apart from that, I've always read voraciously throughout my life. I know that, you know, before starting Everyday Sexism, you were working as an actress and a nanny. So you must have been reading plays as well. Yeah, um, absolutely everything and and seeing a lot of theatre as well. Um, I I love the strangeness of of how plays are so different seen performed versus read. It's such an interesting art form because it's kind of both um, a book and not a book. (laughs) It's literature and and not literature, Um, but also just any kind of scripts as well. Um, many of them sadly (laughs) extremely sexist which was part of what led me from that career to sort of jump into what I'm doing now Um, you would just you just get you get these character breakdowns my boyfriend at the time was an actor as well and he would get these long detailed breakdowns about descriptions of the character that would be all these flowery descriptions of their motivation and their past and what had happened to them and I genuinely had real life character breakdowns that were as short as 32 double d full stop uh, that was the really? only thing Abs- genuinely that was a real life that was the only thing that mattered about that character and the woman playing her or they would be just these incredible convoluted um inconsistent descriptors of women you know i had one again a real example she's a vixen but she's virginal um <laughs> or or um she's naive but fuckable or just these incredible kind of things that would make you wonder whether the the people writing these female characters had ever actually met a woman in real life. <laughs> and were they scripts that were written by men or, you know, were women also putting in these horrendous displays of um, character descriptions? Well, I think women certainly weren't immune, but it was kind of reflective of the broader industry, which was certainly very male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was definitely my my kind of the experiences I look back on that stand out the most in kind of horrifying casting situations. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly involved male casting directors. There was one man who put me and another actress in a room together and made us mime playing tennis. Um, but on each hit of the ball, challenged us each to make increasingly sort of hysterical orgasm noises that was a real genuine interview audition situation I was put in as part of my job or there was another man I remember really vividly who had me in for an audition and the moment before I went into the room put his hand on my shoulder and said we've decided to sex it up a bit and now you're taking your top off what it wasn't you know could you think about this we'd like to discuss this privately would you feel comfortable it was completely just assumed 
And the thing that really got me was it wasn't some kind of sweeping epic drama, you know, some beautiful romantic novel that would require such a love scene. It was mm-hmm. an Ikea wardrobe advert. <laughs> that oh, was what they wow. needed a topless woman for at the time. Oh, my God. I can't. Yeah, I can't. That really just boggles the mind. I mean, it's actually incredible to think that there could be a job interview situation in which you would be called on to fake an orgasm or take your clothes <laughs> off. Yeah, it's a it's um a, an industry that still has many challenges. I think mm-hmm. it would be fair to say. Well, parking acting in the industry aside for a second, um, I wanted to talk about book one, your first choice for the Women's Prize podcast, which is one of the books that I've not heard of before. It's mm-hmm. The Last Slice of Rainbow by Joan Aiken. Yes. What was this book about? It's a beautiful book. It's a book of stories for children. And Joan Aiken is better known for her novels, I think, things like The Wolves of Willoughby Chase or The Whispering Mountain, which I also loved. But she had these beautiful books of short stories for slightly younger children. Um, and there was one called A Necklace of Raindrops, which I think is also more famous. But this collection, The Last Slippers of Rainbow, it's it's quite strange. It's quite dark and kind of gothic and really grotesque in places. And I think that's why, out of all the books I read as a child, this one just really stays with me. And there are feelings uh, of reading it that come back to me now. And I remember the stories. They, I remember exactly how they made me feel as a child. And it's a kind of mixture of excitement and, and horror um, and fascination. I think the reason for that is because she wrote in this really different way. She had this belief, I think, that children shouldn't be patronized. And she didn't believe that children couldn't deal with huge, complex, knotty ideas. So this particular um, collection, for example, there's one story which always gripped me perhaps more than any other. And it's about a girl who's, um, she, she does something wrong and she's cursed to having every hair on her head come to life and scream at her, but nobody else can hear them. And they scream insults and they undermine her and they criticize her and everything she does, they second guess her and they goad her. And she has to practice this incredible self-restraint to try and and live her life with these voices screaming at her. And at the time, I was just fascinated by this story. And looking back, I wonder if if there's a metaphor in there for for mental health, but also for Mm -hmm. a life as as girls and as women, full of the kind of screaming voices of um, the world around us telling us about our own inadequacies, about the perceived imperfections of our bodies. There's, there's so much in that story. Um, oh looking back, it's, it's just, but it was so kind of horrifying and it transfixed me. Even just listening to that story, that's, it's such a deep metaphor for as well, you know, how those kind of screaming voices are external, but then in- eventually you just internalize them and they just become a part of you. Oh God, yeah, Absolutely. It's it, Yeah. And there are other stories as well. There's one about a boy who has to carry butterflies in his mouth. He's trying to rescue them from, from drowning. And just the way that she describes her description, I think, is just outstanding. There's a story where she talks about a boy's heart in his chest like a lark in a biscuit tin. That's very typical of her description, I think. Something that's completely comprehensible as a child. You can immediately imagine the lark and the biscuit tin, but it's also mm-hmm. just beautifully evocative and just so effective. So, yeah, her writing left a really big impression on me, I think. And how old were you when you read the book? I think I was probably very young, perhaps, I don't know, maybe eight or nine. It was definitely mm-hmm. one of the early books on our bookshelves. And I just... um it obviously just had a huge impact on me because I remembered it to this day. And as soon as I knew I was coming on to talk to you and I was thinking, what really kind of evocative books from my childhood do I remember? This one immediately jumped out, although I couldn't remember what it was called, actually. And I spent hours trawling the Internet, typing boy, butterflies, mouse, girl, <laughs> screaming hair, and discovered that there are delightful, huge communities of people online um, specifically designed to help you remember the name of childhood books that you've forgotten. It's actually an incredible experience. I really recommend it for anyone who um, has sort of had a sort of half remembered childhood book that they'd like to find. There's actually that, lots of brilliant communities out there dedicated to sharing these sorts of recollections. That's amazing. It really, it really reminds me of, you know, 
you can sometimes grow up remembering such a clear memory of reading a book or watching a film and then when you wait when you grow up you're like did I even watch that or read that did I just make that up as a child yeah that's so true or you have a really clear recollection of something and when you go back to it it was completely different and you think what was I thinking as how did I misinterpret that it sounds like you were a very imaginative child as well (laughs) yes I think I probably was So the second book that you picked was Knots and Crosses by Mallory Blackman. Yes, and I just adored Mallory Blackman. I read everything that she wrote as a so this was when I was older as a teenager Mallory Blackman was my favorite author. Um and I just uh, all of her books Thief and Pickup Boy and Hacker she wrote so brilliantly and her stories were so gripping and powerful. I would go to the library and then I'd go straight home and I wouldn't stop. I'd have to just read into the night with a torch underneath my covers until I'd finished them. Um, but but Noughts and Crosses, I think, made a really lasting impression on me because I think it was one of the first books I read that really effectively used fiction to examine you know, a kind of social justice, to examine a real life inequality in such a powerful way. Mm. Um, And it's something that's really stayed with me. And especially later on when I felt that that was something that I might try and do myself when I started working with everyday sexism and it led me into schools because so many of the thousands and thousands of stories that we received were from young people. Um, And I started to realise that actually for many of them, they weren't necessarily reading nonfiction books. They didn't necessarily know what the word feminism meant. But I remembered from my own adolescence this experience of of this learning and exploration through fiction. And I wanted to see if it was possible to kind of replicate that. So for people who haven't read Knots and Crosses, would you mind giving a kind of brief synopsis of what it talks about? Yeah, so it's a it's very much a book about race and about power and about inequality. But the way that the um, story deals with it is to imagine a world in which... Um, There is enormous racial inequality as in our world, but in which in this particular scenario, everything has been flipped. So there is a kind of ruling elite, um, if you like, um, of uh, the crosses who are black and a kind of um, unequal society of um, downtrodden white people called noughts. Mm. And I noticed that you're kind of doing a similar thing with your YA book, The Burning, where you talk about you know, revenge porn and 17th century witch hunts. It's almost like you're flipping the kind of realities and like crossing timelines in the same way that Knots and Crosses does. Well, perhaps. I definitely wanted to try and use stories to explore inequality. I think the thing that Mallory Blackman does so brilliantly is that she she doesn't tell you what to think. She doesn't sit down and say, right, you know, we're going to talk about racism. She makes it possible for the reader to come to those realizations about injustice themselves. Mm. And that was definitely something I aspired to. Certainly don't think I um, achieve anything like her masterpiece, but um, that was certainly the idea to try and find a way to help readers to explore their own experiences because I knew that revenge porn was so incredibly common but the narrative surrounding it at so many of the schools that I visited was just so flawed because the the girl who is often the victim of coercion and harassment and abuse as soon as these photographs are shared becomes the villain of the piece she becomes the slut or the slag or the whore the boys in question almost always emerge unscathed or or lauded as kind of players and lads and studs And so many girls I've seen have ended up actually leaving school altogether. Massive implications for their education because of the way this story is told, because of this narrative, which is so powerful that the woman is the one who has done a terrible thing, who's committed a crime. And I wanted to find a way to straighten that narrative out, to tell that story differently, because the prevailing narrative, I think, is so just so messed up. And when you started Everyday Sexism in 2012, did you expect to get this many, this much of a response from, you know, people in school? No, I really thought naively, I think, well, I didn't expect to get as much of a response as we got full stop. I thought that maybe 50 people would share their stories and we'd be able to point to that and say, look, you know, this really is a problem. And in reality, we heard from hundreds of thousands of people But I certainly anticipated, I think, hearing from adult women in workplaces and and relationships. And the reality was that a huge proportion of the stories we received 
from girls as young as eight or nine um, who were being shouted at in the street by men, you know, so sexually aggressively that they perhaps didn't even understand what was being said to them or girls who were 14 and 15 who were being sexually assaulted at school and being told boys will be boys or, you know, it's your fault for wearing a short skirt. Um, it, it really opened my eyes to the scale of the problem. And I think I hadn't anticipated just how young it started and, and how bad it was for girls. It must have been almost quite overwhelming to receive this many responses. It was, especially at the beginning, because it was so unexpected. And to feel, to read these stories, which are, of course, so powerful, but also so horrifying. And I think for me, there was then a real sense of of a burden of responsibility with that. So Mm -hmm. many of these stories had never been told before. I I heard from a a woman, for example, who wrote me a typewritten letter. She was in her 80s and she wrote a typewritten letter that said, it began with something like, um, there are too many examples to count, but here are some highlights arranged by decade. And oh, there was this, this sense of what do I do now? Suddenly, unexpectedly, I have these very precious stories that people have trusted with me with. And I felt very strongly that I wanted to find a way to try and use them in a way that was that honoured the people who had been courageous enough to share them, but also that tried to give them a real purpose that we could try and use them in a way that would prevent other people from going through the same thing, then that would provide some kind of catharsis. So I started taking the stories and splitting them off into specific sections. So I took the stories that had come from girls into schools to talk to young people about healthy relationships and consent. And I took the stories that we'd received from specific sectors into workplaces um, that were where it was relevant. So I'd take the stories from women in law into uh, legal firms and, and talk about the specifics of the problem there. Or we used um, one of the best things we did, I think, was to use about 2000 of the stories that had come just from women on public transport to the British Transport Police, who were looking specifically at sexual offences on the transport network. And they knew that 95% of sexual offences went unreported. Um, so they had the power to stop it, but they didn't really have the details of what the problem was. Mm. And we had all the details and none of the power to stop it. So to put those two things together was very satisfying. And these women's stories then, in their own words, were explicitly used to as part of the retraining for about 2,000 British transport police officers. And it had a really big effect. It raised the reporting of sexual offences and the detection of offenders by almost a third. So I think that is such a testament to the power of stories and, and the, the power that they can have to make change. That's amazing. So were you always kind of welcome in these places of work or these schools? You know, <laughs> what kind of response would you receive from people? It's been extraordinarily varied. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on my way to give a talk at a, a big city firm once and a, a man uh, saw me looking at the map on my phone trying to work out which building I needed and said, oh, I'm walking that way, Where he asked me where I was going and, and offered to show me the way. And we were having a really lovely chat until he asked me what I was going in to talk about. And when I mentioned it was about, you know, quality and diversity, he actually crossed the street to get away from me and shouted, um, oh, for Christ's sake, we've got to have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fair to say that there can be resistance, certainly. Um, I've spoken in schools where... The boys have been told in advance that I'm coming in and they've organised themselves in advance so that when I walk out onto the assembly hall stage, all the hundreds of boys started wolf whistling in unison. Mm. Um, I went to one school where they'd had a sexting case and the head teacher and the senior leadership team had chosen to deal with it by uh, suspending the the girl, the victim, um, punishing her. And they'd then explicitly forbidden the teachers from talking to the pupils about the case at all. They very much wanted to sweep it under the carpet. You know, don't let parents think that we have a problem. Reputational damage above pupil well-being is how I would characterise it anyway. And there was a group of young female feminist teachers at the school who just were absolutely horrified by this and desperately wanted to give the students an opportunity to talk about what was going on. 
Um, so they they smuggled me into the school. Um, they put down this this talk. They had these talks for um, year groups on certain days of the week, and they mm-hmm. said that this one was a driver's driver's ed type talk, and right. then smuggled me in. <laughs> so it's really mixed, um, and the responses are mixed as well. But I think having the conversation is the most important place to start. If we're not talking about it, then we can't get anywhere. And yes, there's resistance, but actually, particularly with boys. A lot of the resistance, I think, comes from a place of misconception, you know, about what what feminism is, about what it believes, about the idea that to talk about sexism, we must be blaming boys, that to talk about women's equality, we must be taking something away from men. And if you're prepared to be open and patient and just have those conversations with them, the nice thing is that there really is an answer to all of their questions. And then often you can really move forward. I think also it's a really powerful testament to just being open and being willing to have the conversation do you think it's harder now to kind of open that dialogue and have people take it on good faith that you're engaging with them as opposed to trying to shout them down because I think that's what you know people say a lot about when you try and engage with people who have different opinions on social media that it's a completely bad faith argument and you shouldn't be engaging with these people at all Yes, I think it's getting harder because I think that we are becoming more polarised as a society and I think that there's a lot of bad faith mischaracterization of the different sides of an argument going on very deliberately. Um, in fact, in the last couple of years, I started to notice that in schools in particular, the boys who had come perhaps, you know, mistrustfully but prepared to talk before were starting to arrive sort of pre-prepared at sessions and to the extent that they would come with notebooks sometimes um, with their arguments written down and they would be sort of almost glazed over and they really weren't prepared to listen because they came already believing that feminism is cancer, that women hate men, that the gender pay gap is a myth, that false rape accusations are more common than real reports of rape. And it was really strange and it made it almost impossible to have a conversation because they were so radicalized is the word really and actually Mm. as I looked into it and I started talking to them and asking them where they got these ideas I started to realize that in schools across the country you know from inner city London to rural Scotland boys were not only coming out with these same ideas but they were using the same exact words and phrases or the same fake statistics to back them up and I started to realize that there was something really sinister going on and, and looking into it further realize that these boys are being very deliberately radicalized online um, by men from various very extreme online communities places like incels like pickup artists like men's rights activists Um, and this is what I've spent the last two years uh, researching for my new book for men who hate women because it suddenly dawned on me that this was a form of radicalization this was a form of grooming that had made these boys utterly unreachable. They weren't prepared to listen. But it was almost completely under the radar. When we talk about grooming or about radicalization, we're talking about other things. If you look at the prevent strategy, which is so overzealously focused on Islamic extremism that we've seen a, a, a young boy questioned by police because he misspelled the word terrorist and wrote that he lived in a terrorist house by mistake. Mm-hmm. We are so overzealous about preventing young people from those forms of radicalization and extremism, but the prevent strategy guidelines don't mention gender at all. So this other kind of grooming was happening completely under the radar. I mean, it sounds like exhausting work as well, which is why I'm not surprised you are a big reader of fiction, just to have a break <laughs> from all of this. Yes, <laughs> definitely. I think fiction is absolutely escapism as well. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize of Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Look no further for the dreamiest summer treat. Strawberries and cream combines ripe strawberry flavour with the creamy, delicious taste of Bailey's. So don't forget to treat yourself by pouring the ultimate dessert over your eaten mess at a picnic in the park, or maybe just in your back garden over ice with your most adored book. Now that's our idea of living summer best. 
So the third book that you've picked is The Country of Ice Cream Star by Sandra Newman. Yes. Oh, I cannot recommend this book enough. And actually talking of escapism, this book, although it deals with some very, very heavy issues, um, is is beautifully escapist because it's written, the entire book is written in a in an invented language all the way through every word to the extent that when you read the first page, you almost think, what am I reading? What is this? I can't read this book because I don't know this language. And then it does this beautifully clever thing where you you persevere and within perhaps the first 20 pages you suddenly know the language and you're able to understand it and it becomes like poetry um, it's difficult to describe without experiencing it yourself um, it's set in a, a kind of apocalyptic future world where um, a mysterious disease um, kills all adults when they reach the age of sort of anywhere between about 18 and 23. Um, and so the world is ruled by kind of gangs of roaming young people. Um, but the language that they've sort of created for themselves is just, it's absolute poetry. It's just beautiful. It's so beautifully written. And because of the fact that you are sort of slightly deciphering it as you go along, it's extremely, um, the book just swallows you. It's, it's brilliant escapism because you can't focus on anything else. It's extremely absorbing. And I know you read it for your role as a judge for the Women's Prize as well. I did, which I absolutely loved and was just one of the best experiences I've ever had. Um, and this book was on, on my list. We apportioned the books out at the, in the very first stage. So I got to champion it and um, wax lyrical about it. And it, it ended up on the long list. Um, it didn't make it to the shortlist, sadly, but I just, I absolutely love it and can't recommend it enough. It's beautiful. Did you think that it kind of talked in a teenage dialect convincingly? I feel like you're probably the person that I've met who has probably met the most number of teenagers outside of <laughs> teachers now. Yes, but it isn't really a teenage dialect in the way that it's written. It's mm-hmm. it's it's almost just another language. It's very, I suppose it is kind. Of, of course, they are they are teenagers, but that's not what strikes you about it. It's not in any way dumbed down or um, simplified. It's it's almost made the language is made more beautiful. It's an incredible feat. How on earth Sandra Newman, the writer, did it? I can't imagine. I'd love to ask her whether she invented the language first and then wrote the book or whether the language kind of developed as she wrote the book. But yes, it's um, it's completely convincing, which is an incredibly difficult feat, I think, for an entirely invented language. But you never, it doesn't jar. It, there's never a false note. I really like how a lot of your picks on this list are almost science fiction or fantasy, um, mm. which are both genres that I absolutely love. Yeah, that's true. It hadn't really occurred to me, actually. Um, my first my first introduction to that genre was reading Slaughterhouse Five um, mm. when I was uh, perhaps I suppose fourteen I think it was for GCSE and just absolutely falling in love with it. But I think I'm I'm attracted to books within those genres that that still I think have some kind of tethering to our own world as well. Have you ever considered writing a sci-fi novel about sexism? <laughs> You're making me think about it now. <laughs> I mean, one of the best ones that I read for the Women's Prize podcast, actually, was um, The Power, yes, uh, which is, which I think is sort of the gold standard of how you might approach a science fiction book in a feminist way. So Naomi Alderman, just brilliantly, I guess, does what for sexism, what Knots and Crosses does for racism and that she flips the power dynamic to show you just how ridiculous that a hierarchy even is. Absolutely, yes, and so skillfully as well, because I think something like that could also be done very badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> any of these any of these things I think where fiction takes on injustice, story and and narrative have to come first, otherwise the whole thing is a failure. It can't be about hitting you over the head with it. It can't be too obvious, it can't be about telling you what to think, because then what's the point? <laughs> Would you be interested in writing more fiction? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I'm I'm working on a my next YA novel at the moment, um, which tries to answer the question of of what on earth happens when you bring up a generation of teenage girls in an America where they quite clearly and uncategorically can look around them and see that if you're accused of sexual assault by dozens of women, you can become the president. 
And mm. if a woman comes forward and goes through the trauma of detailing her own abuse before the whole world, the person that she accuses will go on to become a judge on the Supreme Court. Or if a boy is found guilty of raping an unconscious young woman, then we'll talk about his promising swimming career and, and give him great leniency. What on earth happens when you bring up a generation of young women in a world where you tell them that that, that is the response to anything that happens to them? And what if they decide to take matters into their own hands? Interesting. <laughs> so how far along is it? Because now I'm intrigued and I want to read it. <laughs> um, it's, it's quite close to the finishing the first draft. I think it will be published next year. So your fourth book that you've picked is How to Be Both by Ali Smith. Yes, which won the Women's Prize the year that I was um, judging, which I was absolutely delighted by. And this book is just, I mean, how do you even describe this book? It does so, so much in a, sim- in a single book. It, it bends time, it blends poetry and prose. It, it explores everything from grief to gender identity to human trafficking to historical legacy. It's, I think it's just one of the most phenomenal books I've ever read. And I also think that Anytime I see anyone try to describe this book, it, it, they make it sound a bit daunting. And for mm-hmm. me, it's, it's all so accessible. And I think that's really important. So for the people who might not know what this book is about, you know, is yes. there a kind of a brief synopsis you could offer? <laughs> it's quite a challenging question yeah. about this one. Um, it's, a, it's a book that um, tells two stories. And the way that it was printed, um, there are, the two stories are... Um, you don't know which story you'll get first. So half the book in some um, copies, half of the book comes first and then the second story comes second. And in other copies, they're the other way around. One story is a story of a teenage girl called George living in Cambridge in the 1960s and coping with the recent loss of her mother. And the other story uh, is um, about an Italian Renaissance artist in the 1460s um, dealing with... um, issues that I don't want to uh, I don't want to give any spoilers but um, it deals with issues about gender identity particularly and and kind of legacy and who gets who gets to make art and who gets to decide um, what great art is and yeah the two stories beautifully complement each other and they inform each other and they change each other so it's a kind of um, replication of the fresco painting method but in literary form but again that makes it sound kind of technical and and scary which it isn't I don't think. And when you were judging the women's prize what was that experience like? Oh it was incredible I mean it really was one of the best things I've ever been lucky enough to do both because of the experience of the privilege of reading so many wonderful wonderful books by women but also because of the experience of the judging, which was such a joy. And it was, interestingly, it was the only thing I've ever judged where it was just all women in the room. And I have to say, it did absolutely transform the experience of of a judging process because it was so, it was generous, it was collaborative. Um, People were prepared to change their minds. Um, People changed one another's minds. It was very passionate, but it was also very um, safe. It was just absolutely brilliant. It was kind of like being being involved in the most amazing book club, but sort of on steroids, because you're reading hundreds of books instead of just one a month. When you started Everyday Sexism, would you have guessed that this would be kind of where your career would take you, where the project would lead you to? No, I I never could have dreamed that any of this would have happened. And I've been so incredibly lucky. And actually, really, truly, none of these things would have happened to me without the support of other women. So much of my career and the way it's developed has been because other women have seen what I was doing and have reached out and supported me. You know, my my um, incredible agent, Abby Bergstrom, who at the time was at Simon & Schuster as an editor, who reached out to me and said, have you thought about writing a book about this? Um, and it never had crossed my mind and probably never would have done if she hadn't. Um, and, and women who've really championed me and the books and the project in such generous ways. Um, and it's been really life changing, of course. Like that group of feminist teachers who smuggled you in <laughs> as a driving instructor. Exactly. Or, or the group of women who 
um, you know, just reached out to me when they first saw that the project was receiving a slew of abuse online, which of course is sadly um, very predictable and said, we've been here before, we will walk you through this, you're not on your own. I think that's just incredible and just makes such a difference. Do you think that it's kind of changed from then? Do you think women get less abuse or more abuse online? I certainly don't think it's lessened. (laughs) Mm. Um, I think that I like to hope that this is a teething problem. The internet is still relatively in its infancy. And at the moment, what we're seeing, of course, is a symptom of a wider issue in our society. It's not really an internet issue at all. But certainly, and that will be much harder to crack its roots in our society, but certainly in terms of how it manifests itself on the internet, at the moment, there is just lawlessness. There's a lot going on which is illegal. It's already illegal to threaten to rape or kill somebody online, just as it would be in real life. But unfortunately, that is what many men are doing with impunity at the moment on a daily basis. And, you know, it is far, far worse if you're a woman of colour, if you're a trans woman online, then you're receiving this so much so much amplified and you get the intersectional nature of that abuse and you're also far less likely to see any kind of support for it so I think at the moment our ways of dealing with it are deeply flawed and particularly social media companies completely unsatisfactory in their handling of it they like to pay lip service to the problem they like to kind of suggest that this is so huge and you know how could anybody really tackle it They don't really take action until a journalist gets in touch saying we're writing a story about abuse against Taylor Swift or X insert the name of another usually very privileged young white woman. And then they go, oh, no, 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 in this case. And they want to give a good quote to the press. So they take action and protect that one particular privileged white woman. But because the systemic nature of the problem doesn't get tackled, it means that the way that they're dealing with it kind of just helps to further marginalise people whose voices are already missing from the conversation. I think it's a real problem. And what do you think needs to be done about the situation? Like in an ideal world, if, you know, Twitter and Facebook and, you know, every single media company, social media company in the world handed over the reins to you, what, <laughs> what's the first thing you would do? The first thing I would do would be to hire thousands and thousands of human moderators and to train them using and paying civil society groups, particularly for marginalised communities and those most likely to face online abuse, to train them to recognise and deal with online abuse on the platforms. And the idea that that's not something that's possible is completely absurd. These companies, some of them are making more money than the income of a small country. You know, so, you know, they say, oh, but it's really difficult because algorithms are flawed and we're trying to algorithmically deal with this. Well, yeah, so hire 10,000 human moderators and do it properly. You've got the money. But instead, it's just the individual women who end up being these kind of canaries in the coal mines. And you've got someone like Leslie Jones and the horrific racist and misogynistic abuse that she faced. And it took her going through what I imagine must have been an utterly traumatic and perhaps life changing experience that I think few of us can imagine what that must have felt like to have thousands and thousands of men sending her pictures of uh, horrific racist memes, pictures of her own face covered in their semen. You know, that's what it took for Twitter to take action against specific hate figures who'd been using the platform for years to incite that kind of pile on. Uh, It's the wrong way around. It shouldn't be that victims are having to go through that in order for things to be done when these companies know what the problem is and they do have the money and the power to fix it or certainly to make great strides if they wanted to. Are there any like you know bright sides of you know the work that you've done you've clearly achieved so much at a relatively young age? Well I think for me the thing that completely makes it worthwhile and doable is the success stories or success stories isn't the right word really the, the stories we receive from people that are very different in tone from what we were getting when the project first started. There was a woman who said that she uh, often went running and she was used to being harassed and abused. And then there was this day she went running and she had been reading the stories on the Everyday Sexism Project from other women experiencing similar things. And on this particular, it was a November evening, it was cold and dark and a man slowed down in his car and wound down the window and called her over and asked for directions. And she went to help him and he leaned out of the window and grabbed her breasts with both hands and really hurt her as well as terrifying her. 
And she said she felt all the usual emotions that she would feel in that situation, anger and shame and embarrassment and fear and the urge to run. But she also felt something she'd never felt before. And it was the sense that thousands of other women were standing alongside her. And it gave her the strength just to stop for a moment and write down the car number plate and that the man was later charged with assault. Those kinds of stories, I think, make a make a difference, certainly. That's amazing. I mean, that's an incredible thing to, especially I feel like if you are the subject of abuse yourself, um, to know that you can just go back to everyday sex and think, well, the project that I've done has actually changed people's lives and gotten people convicted as well, um, rightfully so. That's got to feel pretty good. <laughs> it definitely helps, certainly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So for your fifth book, you picked Madeline Miller's book, Circe, um, which is a book I also love. I actually just finished one of her previous books. What did you like about Circe? Oh, well, actually, it's it's very relevant to what we've just been talking about, because to me, Circe was real escapism. It was it was while I was writing this this book, Men Who Hate Women, where I was kind of um, willingly immersing myself in these online extremist communities, um, which was a really difficult thing to do and uncomfortable that I was reading Circe and I found it like a balm. Um, I'd emerged from these days that I'd spent in sort of wading through hatred and bile online to Miller's writing, which is just absolutely, it's just beautiful and it's clear and it's soothing. And I had loved her first book, The Song of Achilles, um, but what I just loved about Circe was the way that she she took a character who really is a very marginal, minor player in classical mythology, um, and she gives her this sort of complex personality and this whole full life and agency and space. Um, I think what I loved about it was that it, she gives Circe, who is um, she's a she's a nymph, she's a witch. Um, and she ends up being exiled from her home and she spends a great deal of her life living alone on an island, but sort of glorying in learning and understanding her her innate power and harnessing it and becoming increasingly powerful. Um, but she mingles the kind of grandiose elements of classical mythology like magic and power and monsters with some very kind of almost mundane realities of of what it is to be a woman so she she has she for example is a single mother and she lives alone um and i I liked how kind of uncompromising that portrayal was and the fact that she doesn't always have to be likable either um cersei that she's she's difficult and proud and rebellious and and very real i suppose and she was very brave and uncompromising at a time when I was trying to be brave and uncompromising myself and not feeling very brave. So it, it was one of those books, some books I think you could read at any time in your life and you'd fall in love with them. But for me, it was one of those books that came along at just the right moment. I can imagine as well, if you're going, you know, undercover in these incel forums and the manosphere, it's almost like you need a a book that's just told completely from the perspective of an amazing woman to kind of counter that. Definitely. And a witch <laughs> yeah. at a time when you're being called a witch and much, much worse. Yes, definitely. It was almost like a talisman, I suppose. <laughs> what was it like going underground in those kind of forums, researching the book? It was really, really shocking. And I really thought that I was unshockable. I mean, at this point, there are days when I get 100 death threats or rape threats, you know, and they're long and detailed. It's not just I will kill you. It's here are the 17 different knives that I'll use to disembowel you with and what order I'll use them in. And I didn't think that it could get much worse. But actually, I was completely and utterly taken aback by it, partly by how, how utterly hateful they are but also by how huge they are I think that was the biggest shock for me the biggest mistake we make when we talk about incels and these other members of these communities is to write them off as a tiny group of of oddball losers of fringe um fringe you know cave dwelling men in their parents basements because most people have never heard of them and those who have really think that there's just a handful of them and what really shook me 
was that I was realizing that these communities are number in the hundreds of thousands. They, I mean, I've traced incel ideology directly to the murders or serious injury of over a hundred people in the last 10 years alone. These are men who are deliberately going offline and using guns or cars or knives to stab women, to mow them down, to shoot them. And yet we never use the word terrorism to describe them when that's exactly what it is and exactly what they're doing. And I think the, the scariest, the weirdest thing for me about this research was that I would spend my days wading through these literally millions of threads and posts, um, these kind of group orgies of imagining days of retribution when women would be killed and raped, debates about whether women should be kept as sex slaves or whether they should be killed, debates about whether women should be thought of as human beings at all, about whether rape should be legalised or whether that would take the fun out of it for them. And then I'd emerge offline to a world where, first of all, I had to adjust to normality, but also where no one else had ever heard of it. No one knew this stuff was going on outside of my feminist activist internet bubble, where, of course, people have been sounding the alarm about incels for years. The average person I know just in my daily life has never even heard of them. And that was really hard, I think, to to realise that you know, people have heard of the Toronto van attack, but they have no idea that Alec Manassian, who carried out that attack, was deliberately murdering and massacring women because of an extremist ideology, an extremist misogynistic ideology. I mean, it's so depressing to hear about stuff like this because you kind of think, you know, projects like everyday sexism, for instance, kind of shone the alarm and highlighted this kind of pervasive everyday sexism and misogyny that, you know, nowadays is pretty much considered not acceptable, you know, catcalling, for instance, or sexual harassment in the workplace. But to find out that there's this whole kind of fringe lunatic underground that is full of these kind of elaborate fantasies of murdering and you know enslaving women that's just horrendous I mean do you think that you know you mentioned it's not the kind of stereotype of the basement dwelling loser who lives with their parents you know is your kind of understanding that the people who are engaging in this ideology they're just regular guys absolutely and we know that's the case because you can look at men who've been arrested for sending thousands of horrendous hateful abusive messages to women in the public eye for example and discover that they're you know a successful accountant who coaches his son's football team or um actually i went i also infiltrated some of these communities offline and i went to one of the biggest men's rights meetups in the uk um sort of semi in disguise and um chatted to a really pleasant very sharply dressed um, white man in his mid thirties who kind of made small talk with me about where I'd come, where we'd come from that day, and all of the rest of it. And minutes later, he was up on stage, baying for the blood of Alison Saunders, the former head of the Crown Prosecution Service, for the sin of having supported female survivors of sexual violence, and cheering along as as someone on stage announced that feminists shouldn't be allowed to have children because it's child abuse for a feminist to have a son. Um, so I absolutely think that these people who are members of these communities are not the sort of monstrous aberrations we'd like to think. They are regular people that we all probably know and come into contact with. And more than that, actually, one of the most shocking things I found researching the book is that their ideas and their ideology have spread incredibly effectively into the mainstream. So even people who've never heard of these communities, nonetheless, might very well have absorbed some of the myths and misconceptions that they've very effectively spread. You know, the idea, for example, that Me Too is a witch hunt that's gone too far, the idea that white men are now under attack, the idea that men are losing their jobs left, right and centre because of this kind of twitch fork mob, um, the idea that false rape allegations are rife. All of these are very, very common notions. And they've sort of been smuggled out of these dark corners of the internet and given a veneer of respectability by more mainstream commentators and then picked up by the press, by national newspapers looking for a juicy, controversial debate to get lots of clicks. And suddenly, before you know it, 27% of men in America say that they won't have one-to-one -one meetings with women, female colleagues on their own. Old Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, refuses to have a meal alone with a woman who's not his wife. And suddenly you think, 
these ideas that we consider so niche and extreme actually are becoming incredibly common. Most people just don't know where they're coming from. Well, I think Men Who Hate Women is starting to sound like a must read because I've definitely noticed that pervasive spread of I'd say extreme misogynist ideology Mm -hmm. and it's shocking as well that you say that it's boys as well who are absorbing this and kind of parroting it absolutely and they're very clever I mean absolutely is grooming you know it's not about saying to boys come and look at these websites sign up it's much more subtle than that first of all they use very very cleverly and effectively they use vehicles like online memes like viral youtube videos like jokes and photos and imagery they actually describe it explicitly as like putting cherry flavor in children's medicine they are deliberately targeting boys using these kinds of jokes and memes using the veil of banter but they're also going to where they know that boys are online so for example one of the things that was weird when i first started researching this was how right these posts were on bodybuilding websites which at first glance don't seem to have anything to do with these extremist communities but of course they've realized that if you look at the biggest bodybuilding website in the UK the teen section is far and away the most busy area of the site and of course if you're looking for a group of children or young people who are particularly going to be vulnerable to these very hyper-masculine ideas, where better to look than boys who are already vulnerable because they're boys who are particularly, for whatever reason, concerned about creating a particular physique and performing being a man in that particular way. Gaming websites were another place where I found that this grooming was happening. 97% of teenage boys in the States say that they do gaming, and so you've got these boys who are just there online in these spaces. Um, and and absolutely being taken advantage of. I mean, it sounds like the scale of the problem has yet to be exposed, so I'm very much looking forward to your book. Thank you. So one last question, because you've shared so generously with us. If you had to choose one book from your list as a favourite, which one would it be? Oh, no, you can't (laughs) ask me that. It's hard enough that you've asked for only five. I mean, that's cruel enough in itself. I know this is the this is the evil question that we ask people on the podcast. Oh, I guess that's so evil and it's so hard to compare because they're such different things, aren't they? I guess if you had to press a book into someone's hand right now for this exact moment in time, which one would it be? How to be both, I think. Right. It's so wonderful and it does so so much and I think it would probably do something different for anybody who read it. Well, I love how to be both. So I am very, very, very minded to agree with you. Thank you so much, Laura, for sharing your books with us and sharing so much of your time with the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really lovely. I'm Zing Singh, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. You definitely want to click subscribe. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard from today. And thanks very much for listening. See you next time. Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Cassian Andor, Empire is choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One... There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? Star Wars Andor. Original series streaming September 21st. Exclusively on Disney+. 18 plus. Subscription required. T's and C's apply.